an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Good evening, and uh, thank you for the wonderful welcome, the wonderful dinner. I'm not used to such a friendly audience, and so this is especially wonderful for me to be here. Um, I want to thank Tom Sofio uh, for making this happen, and thanks, too, to Father Terry for hosting me. Uh, I was aware of his work before I ever came here, uh, in particular his forthright, courageous, and forceful response to the HHS mandate. Um, I hear he'll be stepping down soon, and I, I hope it's not because he heard I was coming to talk tonight. <clears throat> in all seriousness, we need more leaders like him. And in fact, earlier this afternoon, at a time when I usually would have been polishing up my speech, I found myself addicted to watching him on YouTube because his homilies are so fantastic. Um, for those who haven't seen all of them, I recommend that you do. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be in Steubenville for the first time, uh, visiting this university that I've heard about for years. Some of your faculty members are also people I've been learning from for some time. I hasten to add that unlike those distinguished people, I am not a professor, and I'm not going to play one on a campus as serious as this one. But I do know enough about professors to, uh, to know that you students out there are surpassingly fortunate to have the ones that you have here at Steubenville, teachers who care not only that you learn, but what you learn, and who want you to learn nothing less than the truth. Now, you are probably starting to wonder, if she's not a professor, who is this weird lady, and why is she here to talk about sex? <laughs> and the answer is, I'm not here to talk about sex exactly, but about something else uh, that causes quite a lot of confusion. <clears throat> and that is the sexual revolution. And in order to explain what I mean by that, let me introduce myself with a series of imaginary hats. I'm here first as a wife and mother, that's my most important hat, who has children the same ages as some of you. And frankly, there's no age group I'd rather talk to than college students and people in their 20s. In uh, 2010, in fact, I wrote a work of fiction um, that I guess some of you have heard about called The Loser Letters, a comic tale of life, death, and atheism. It's a satire that is in some ways the flip side, or the more flippant side, of what I'm going to talk about tonight. My talk is called Myths of the Sexual Revolution. I retitled it right before I came here. <laughs> the reason that I like writing for and talking to your age group is simple. Many older people who have lived through the momentous social changes that I'll be describing are inflexible in their views concerning the sexual revolution. It's my experience that younger people are more naturally open-minded and more willing to entertain radical possibilities. That's good, because some of what I'm about to say is radical indeed by the standards of our secular society. So please keep those minds of yours open, as I know you will, in considering what follows. So here's my second hat. I'm a Catholic. That is probably not exactly a newsflash here in Steubenville. But there are places where that particular hat can really induce a case of the Victorian vapors on the part of secular worldly people who are even more frightened of religious believers than they are of getting their email accounts hacked. <laughs> As my kids like to tell me about snakes, remember, they're more afraid of you than you are of them. <laughs> Even so, there's a lot of misperception and ill will out there in the secular universe, particularly toward the Catholic Church, as everyone here knows. 
And I believe the best way to confront that kind of prejudice is not by playing defense, but by playing offense. And in this talk, I hope I'll be able to give you <coughs> a modest example of how that can be done. Now here's the third hat, and the one that explains how I got interested in this subject of the sexual revolution, enough to write two books about it, uh, both The Loser Letters and a work of nonfiction two years later called Adam and Eve After the Pill. I'm a researcher and a writer by trade, and I've written and worked mostly in secular journalism and publishing on and off for quite a while. I started writing to avoid going to graduate school, and the habit stuck. <laughs> Up until a few years ago, I in fact worked almost entirely in secular media. Um, I'm grateful to say that certain magazines and publishers were kind enough to put out my work, and that is how, quite unexpectedly, I got started down this road a few years back. So here's the little story. <clears throat> a friend of mine, the poet Joseph Bottom, became editor of the magazine First Things, which I think most of you have probably heard of. And in 2008, he asked me if I had any ideas for articles to write. I didn't have any ideas, but I did want to write something, or more specifically, I wanted to get paid for writing something. <laughs> so I started rummaging around, figuratively speaking, for a subject. Then I realized that that year was the 40th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, the encyclical reiterating the Catholic Church's opposition to artificial contraception. So I thought, this is easy enough. I'll just write up a little something about how this document looks 40 years later, and then I'll get paid for it. But first, I had to do something I had never done, which was actually read the document. <laughs> now, I want all the professors to close their eyes for a minute. <laughs> Students, how many of you have actually read Humanae Vitae? Oh, come on, this is Steubenville. <laughs> Of course you have. Um, <laughs> I am here tonight because when I finally did read it, the experience had an impact that I couldn't possibly have foreseen. Humanae Vitae, not to put too fine a point on it, and as you probably all know, is the most heavily mocked and reviled global document of the past half century. It may have been written long before you were born, but it is nevertheless a living force in the way that other people see you as Catholics. To non-believers and secularists and even to many Christians, including, of course, all dissenting Catholics, it is the document that fixed the kick-me sign on Catholic moral teaching once and for all. How on earth, many people want to know, could the church possibly defend the teaching against artificial contraception? Didn't it want to join the modern world? Wasn't it in favor of freedom? How could the church possibly take issue with the sexual revolution? Now, because I was aware of these prejudices, I was floored by what I found upon actually reading the thing. Humanae Vitae makes several predictions about what the world would look like once the sexual revolution really took hold. That is, once artificial contraception was widely destigmatized alongside extramarital sex itself. The document said that these results would include, among other fallout, a widespread lessening of respect for women by men, a tendency for coercive governments to use the new contraceptive technologies in a coercive way, more broken homes, and a generalized rise in problems between the sexes. These are colloquial ways of putting these points. 
the reason the predictions amazed me was simple and yet profound at the same time. As a researcher who had studied and written about various aspects of American society, again from an almost purely secular point of view, I knew from various forms of empirical evidence, perfectly secular evidence, that all of these predictions had come true. So I assembled a bunch of that secular evidence from sociology and psychology and uh, history and a few other things. Uh, and I wrote an essay called The Vindication of Humanae Vitae for my friend Joseph Bottom at First Things. It came out, it caused uh, something of a stir, um, at least in my little corner of the world. It's in the Adam and Eve book, by the way. And the main reason it caused a stir, I am sure, is that it was a forthright defense of what the document said with no holds barred. Instead of apologizing for traditional teaching or playing look here, not there, as often happens when unpopular doctrine comes up, I argued that not only was Humanae Vitae right, but that it had been vindicated as few attempts to spy the future ever are in ways its authors could not possibly have foreseen, including by information that didn't exist when it was written, by scholars and others with no interest whatsoever in its teaching, and even inadvertently and in more ways than one by many proud public adversaries of the Catholic Church. And the greatest irony of all, I found, was that what the church said there was being vindicated by secular sources. Secular social science assembled by mostly secular social scientists and appearing in mostly secular journals. It was not theology that was vindicating the encyclical, I argued, but social scientists like Kay Heimowitz and David Blankenhorn and George Gilder and Lionel Tiger and many others whom I could and did name. Their scholarship has gone to show that Humanae Vitae was right because what they were documenting with their social science was what the pill was doing to men and women and society. This was an example of playing offense, not defense, in the public square, and it led me to wonder whether there might not be other examples of how secular scholarship can shed new light on what Christianity has taught. So I started researching, and uh, these books were the result. They are very different books, but they have in common the same fundamental conviction that also happens to be a truth. The sexual revolution has had negative fallout, sometimes catastrophically negative fallout, for men, women, and children across the globe. And the secular world remains indignantly ignorant about that fallout, in denial about that fallout, even as the secular evidence continues to mount. So with all that in mind, I'd like to move on and talk about some of the myths of the sexual revolution that are out there in our culture today. I mean to arm you. And myth number one has to be, the idea that contraception is wrong or problematic is just some weird Catholic thing. Nobody else cares about it. This is what a lot of people think, isn't it? I'm sure you hear it all the time from friends and acquaintances, maybe even family members, maybe even those of you who come from strong Catholic families. That's how widespread the myth really is. As we saw especially during the HHS mandate debate, where a lot of anti-Catholics and embarrassed dissident Catholics had a field day mocking and hating on the Catholic Church. But is it true, as the myth suggests, that concern about the sexual revolution is all just some backward, inexplicable Catholic thing? The answer emphatically is no, it is not. 
And here's a little history you can use the next time somebody throws this particular myth at you. In the first place, as most people don't know, it was not only the Catholic Church, but also all the Protestant churches that historically regarded contraception as a sin. John Calvin condemned it, Martin Luther condemned it, and in fact their particular condemnations make whatever the popes have said sound tame. This unanimity in the Christian world did not change until 1930, not until the Anglicans made the very first carefully circumscribed exceptions to the rule, stressing all the while that the rule would not have to be bent often. We all know what happened. To make a long story short, most of the Protestant churches then collapsed on the point one by one. As most people also don't know, some of the evangelicals in America have lately been rethinking this very issue because they have come to believe that Humane Vitae actually got things right. I recommend to you um, Albert Moeller, Jr. of uh, Southern, ba Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, who's written quite uh, incisively on this subject. <clears throat> on top of that, traditional Judaism also condemned contraception, as has traditional Islam, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, also regard contraception as something that is only allowable in certain circumstances. In all of these religions, the assumption is that babies are good and that treating people like spade pets is questionable at best and absolutely wrong at worst. So from a religious point of view, the idea that concern over contraception and the sexual revolution is just some bizarre preoccupation of Catholics is just plain wrong. <clears throat> it's also wrong from a secular perspective. In my book, I quote from some pretty towering minds here and there who examined this question of whether the rapid changes in sexual mores would be a good thing or a bad thing for the world. And none of these people were taking orders from the Vatican. For example, a famous journalist and thinker named Walter Lippmann thought the sexual revolution would be epic, and he agreed with the church that it would change the world. An immensely learned scholar named Petirim Sorokin who founded Harvard University's Department of Sociology, actually wrote an entire book in 1964 called The American Sex Revolution, in which he deplored the way the sexual revolution was changing relations between men and women and within the family. He thought the resulting changes would be catastrophic. Actually, his book makes my book look timid by comparison. Try writing a book like that in Harvard's sociology department today. That'll tell you something about how much the world has changed. Here are three more thinkers from recent decades who have dissected the sexual revolution and argued that it is changing society for the worse. Author George Gilder, economist George Akerlov, sociologist Lionel Tiger, and social critic Midge Dechter. That was four. I recommend all their work to you, and none of them are flax for the Pope either. So remember this the next time somebody mocks your Catholic theology and says that Catholics are just peculiarly hung up about sex. It isn't true. A lot of smart people working across the centuries on the subject of contraception and the sexual revolution had a near consensus on this subject up until practically the day before yesterday, 1930. And here's one more point to make when people tell you this is all just some Catholic thing. The sexual revolution and its repercussions, which I outline at length in the book, are in fact an everybody thing. 
You could be a Wiccan, you could be a Carmelite, you could be Lady Gaga's biggest fan. No matter what, you are still going to be affected by this revolution in more ways that can be counted, economically, politically, personally, and otherwise, for reasons I spell out. Look just for one example at the impending collapse of the modern welfare state in Western Europe. It's happening because not enough young people exist to pay for the system. That is the sexual revolution at work. Now let's look at myth number two. The sexual revolution has made women in particular happier. This again is a widespread idea. Uh, a couple of years ago when the pill hit its 50th anniversary, this was just about the only idea that was expressed about the event in the secular media. <coughs> Namely, that the pill had liberated women from the chains of their fertility and that the resulting world had become a better place for them. Once again, is that true? I think there's a lot of evidence here, too, to suggest that the answer is no. In the first place, let's listen to the troops on the ground, as it were. If you make a point of reading what's considered to be higher-end journalism, the kind of journalism that appears in places like the Atlantic Magazine and Time, New York Times, and associated blogs. Take a look at the pieces that are written about today's women. They're fascinating. I cite a whole lot of them in the Adam and Eve book because I think what secular women say about their condition these days is really fascinating. What do they say? Well, <clears throat> they say that marriage has become impossible and that it's time to go it alone. They talk about how unreliable men are and how women are better off without them. They talk about how hard it is to be a single mother, how balancing home and career is much worse than they thought it would be, and how they always thought that they would end up better off than they have. In other words, they complain a lot. <laughs> but the way in which they complain tells us something important, I think. This is not the language of women who have been liberated. It is the language of people who have given up on human relationships. It's the language of defeat and unhappiness. And at the root of that unhappiness, one could argue, is the sexual revolution. Women, especially secular, sophisticated women, have been told all their lives by many authorities, sometimes by their parents, that contraception is a fact of life that will make them happy. They did not understand that, as a couple of the economists cited in my book have put it, the pill and related technologies effectively flooded the sexual marketplace with competition. And once there was all that competition, the incentives for men to treat women well and to be serious about settling down with just one of them uh, diminished seriously. Again, some of the thinkers I cited earlier, especially George Gilder and Lionel Tiger, that is his name, Lionel Tiger. He's a great sociologist. <laughs> they saw all this coming years ago. But the unhappiness that permeates so much of what some women write today is an especially poignant testimony to it. Here is another proof. Um, this is for those who like social science. This is my favorite. A couple of years ago, two economists from the Wharton School put out a fascinating paper. It's called The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness. This paper looked at survey data about women, not only in the United States, but across the Western world uh, over the past 35 years. 
And what these researchers found really perplexed them. It was that women seemed to be getting less happy as time went on. This simply didn't make sense. Or rather, it didn't make sense to the researchers because, as they pointed out, during these same years, women enjoyed many new advantages, including, as they saw it, easy access to contraception. Now, this is one more paradox that isn't really a paradox at all, not if you're willing to entertain the radical idea that the sexual revolution isn't making women happy. Why not? Well, once again, when hookups are easy to find and people don't fear the consequences because they have the pill to fall back on, Guys don't have a lot of incentive to get serious about anybody. And look at women who are, so, who are slightly older, out of your age bracket. Why do so many accomplished women simply give up these days and decide to have children on their own, sometimes using anonymous sperm donors, thus creating the world's first purposely fatherless children? And what about the fact, which was reported a couple of months ago and much was made of it at the time, that as of now, some 26% of American women are on some kind of mental health medication for anxiety and depression and related problems. The most obvious answer is that something about the way people are living is making a lot of women miserable. By making casual sex easier than it was before, the pill put new obstacles into human relationships. And since happiness for most people, guys as well as girls, turns out in the long run to have a lot to do with having a companion in life, it's a real problem that the pill has gotten in the way of that. So on inspection, it doesn't appear that women are happier after all. Now let's look at one more myth, final myth. The sexual revolution is a permanent feature of humanity, and there's no changing the fact that the vast majority of people are part of it. Here again, I think it is important to play offense and not defense. Returning once more to the pill's 50th anniversary celebrations in the secular media, it was really striking how many people came up with one cliche after another to get across the idea that the sexual revolution is a permanent part of the landscape. They said, the genie can't go back in the bottle. They said, there's no turning back the clock. They said, we can't go back to the 1950s. They said, Ozzie and Harriet days are over. And since you guys are all too young to know who Ozzie and Harriet were, I will explain. They were a television couple from the 1950s who were happily married with two children. And for some reason, people who are rigidly secular are obsessed with them. <laughs> anyway, all these cliches were meant to signal this idea. The way Western society lives now, meaning after the revolution, is inevitable. Now that is a very interesting word, inevitable. Because history is in fact littered with movements that once claimed inevitability for themselves and that are now as outdated as typewriters and telephone extension cords. Think about Marxism and Freudianism. Or my favorite example, cigarette smoking. In the Adam and Eve book, uh, I have a whole chapter comparing pornography use today to tobacco use 50 years ago. And let me be clear, I'm not saying they're morally equivalent pastimes. Far from it. I'm also not out de to demonize people who smoke. I'm making a different point. In the past half century, not only America, but the entire Western world has done a near 180 on tobacco use. It's gone from being widely accepted to largely stigmatized. 
uh, certainly in indoor spaces. And what's interesting about that change is that 50 years ago, most people were pretty much resigned to cigarette smoke, whether they themselves smoked or not. 50 years ago, most people would have said that tobacco smoking was here to stay. It was ubiquitous. It was inevitable. Now we know that wasn't so after all. Smoking has dropped dramatically, again, across the advanced world. So why? Well, the reason is that people started examining the evidence. The proof that smoking can cause harm was assembled little by little by little, and eventually it changed the way most people saw that activity. So why shouldn't we assume that the sexual revolution is comparable? As Karl Popper showed in The Poverty of Historicism, history is not, in fact, on the side of movements claiming inevitability for themselves. No social movement gets a special dispensation from history, no matter how badly some people might want it to. Human beings are not only moral creatures, but rational ones, at least collectively and over time. And the empirical record about the dark side of the sexual revolution will eventually make a dent. Over time, many people do change their minds when faced with evidence. And anyone who doubts that should try lighting up a cigarette today in New York City. All the talk in the world about genies and bottles and Hazi and Harriet in the 1950s won't get you out of that ticket. That is an optimistic thought to close on in its way. Thank you for listening, and thank you for hosting me in Steubenville. And go out and play offense, not defense. Let's use that. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.